Bloody Elbow presents the MMA Vivisection, the show that gives you a comprehensive breakdown and expert analysis of all the fights happening on this week's UFC main card. Paid Bloody Elbow Podcast Substack subscribers will hear bonus content, if available, at the end of the broadcast. Be sure to subscribe at bloodyelbow.substack.com for our newsletter and at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com for our podcast network. Follow us on Twitter at Bloody Elbow, Facebook at facebook.com slash bloodyelbowblog, and as always, on bloodyelbow.com. Thanks for listening. Here are your hosts, Bloody Elbow Fight Analysts, Zane Simon and Connor Rebush. Hey everybody, welcome back to the MMA Viva section with me, Zane Simon, and my co-hosts, as always, Connor Rebush. We're here once again talking about this week's UFC card, UFC 291, another pay-per-view in the month of July, this time headlined by a lightweight rematch for the Who Gives a Shit BMF title for an awesome fight, though, Dustin Poirier, Justin Gagey. And if this is the excuse the UFC needed to make a pay-per-view headlined by this fight, I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, that was my thought as well. Like, the, BMF, the BMF belt is a, obviously a joke. It's really stupid. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is even more stupid that, like, because uh, I, I, we all believe that there's like some kind of contractual stipulation right that they have to have title fights on espn plus yeah, i am i am 75 percent sure that that's... so if that is the case the idea that they can just i mean all titles are fake as, yeah. at some point but uh, that they can like just make up an even faker title in order to justify it's very silly it is very silly. Um, but like pay-per-views should be able to have fights like this at the top. It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be for a title. It's a fight I care about. I want to see five rounds of a rematch between these two awesome fan favorite action fighters who yeah. bring it every single time. So yeah, BMF belt, if that's what you got to do, whatever. Yeah. I, I, really, it's just a thing too where like, and I've been trying to say this recently, but the UFC is more hidebound than ever before to their schedule where they have pay-per-view events that are now the target for all their big fights they don't want to put big fights on non-pay-per-view cards yeah and so like those cards are very set up to they must have these kinds of fights on them so it's really Anything that's not like, oh, we've got the Australia card, Izzy's got to be on it. We've got the Abu Dhabi card, Islam's got to be on it. We've got the New York card, John Jones got to be on it. We've got the the end of the year Vegas card, Conor McGregor's got to be on it. That kind of stuff. Right. They're just trying to, you know, a- a- anything else that needs to be like crammed in around the edges, basically. So it, you kind of get these weird sort of. Yeah, stuff like this where they had like we had International Fight Week where we got to get a couple title fights on that because it's International Fight Week. It's the big event. It has to be big. And then, uh, as it turns out, Salt Lake City, uh, Utah, rather, is paying the UFC for a bunch of money to have pay-per-view cards. Oh. So that's why we've had two events in Salt Lake City this year. Wow. And so the UFC, like, they just have to come up with a a, a, a card for Salt Lake City that feels big, you know? And this is what we get. And it's a good card. 
it's got good fights on it. But it is like they are so much more, I think, structurally bound than they used yeah. to be. Because and a, a part of this too was that it used to be. I, I was thinking about this and trying to figure out why. And it used to be that the UFC was running everything out of Las Vegas. The whole Las Vegas was the big fight hub for the big U, the big UFC fights. All yeah. the pay-per-views used to be in Las Vegas, essentially. At you least, might, yeah, like three quarters of them were in Vegas. Yeah, you might throw an occasional one at uh, Sao Paulo or New York sure. or whatever. But you'd have like Atlanta or you'd have Toronto. You'd have, yeah. Yeah, you'd have the occasional other market, but most of the mm-hmm. pay-per-views were in Vegas. And it yeah. was the small cards that traveled everywhere. You know, it was the fight nights that would go to different cities all the time. It's interesting. It is now the exact opposite, isn't it? And the the pandemic switched that up. And now it's all the small cards that are in Vegas. And that's where they're just packing in all the stuff nobody cares about. Mm -hmm. But now those big cards that are traveling around the world for all the pay-per-views, those are much harder to book because they are so site-specific. And you're taking your big cards to places where you have to have specific entertainment for that market. Yeah. And there's an even bigger, uh, an even bigger downgrade in terms of like uh, how much more an audience excitement would bring. Like even if the apex cards weren't like worse than fight night cards used to be, which I believe they mm-hmm. are. They are. They are. Unquestionably, you don't um, have to have for the apex. So you're not worried about yeah. ticket sales. doesn't matter at all. So they just throw whatever shit they got. Um, but, at least for like little local shows, you, there would be like a bunch of cities in the, you know, I went to the show in Indianapolis many years ago, mm-hmm. which was um, um, Carlos Condit versus Martin Campman, too. Yeah. Both uh, Carlos Condit signed my copy of Dune, <laughs> which I was reading between fights because I went there alone and I'm a dork. Um and uh, yeah, like people in those regions would wait ages to get yeah. a card. They they couldn't afford to go to a pay per view, but they yeah. could drop you know eighty bucks on a decent UFC ticket, and then and so it was like a rabid crowd almost every time. Yep, people were like they were really excited to see it. Yeah, I also saw in Cleveland. I saw uh, Stepe versus uh, somebody, and. Um, yeah, those were like those were really big events in in like you know forgotten parts of the country like Ohio yeah. and Indiana. That used to be the UFC's thing is that they would bring small they would bring what felt like big fights because their events were really well structured and they were packed yeah. top to bottom with interesting talent that people cared about. Man, I saw Matt Brown, Eric Silva in Cincinnati, and yeah. that was the craziest live experience I have ever had. And they the would crowd. Bring- the hometown crowd going nuts for that fight yeah. for their guy was so amazing. They would bring big cards to small to, to markets that didn't get f- big fights. You know, yeah. you're not getting a big boxing event in Cincinnati. They're not. Nobody's going to host a big pay per view there. We had a couple yeah. Adrian Broner fights here for a minute because he's yeah. from he's from Cincy. So you, you get the rare, but like, or you know, you're not going to get one in like they put them on in uh, fucking Wyoming. You know, yeah. they bring a UFC card to Wyoming. For, yeah. They got the Crawford fights in Omaha, but that's the only thing ever happening in Omaha. <laughs> yeah. And so you, you know, that, that was their thing for a long time. Is it like, oh, we're going to take, it was cool. We're take big fights <laughs> everywhere. 
Yeah, and it was cool. I liked it. Was, it. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now they real the pandemic taught them that it is way more economical and way less work to just do it at the apex. Yeah. And then to take the pay-per-views out to your big international and national markets that you want to hit. Yeah. And occasionally a few times a year, you know, they went to Raw or they went to North Carolina recently and they went to, you know, they, they've gone to a couple other big events uh, around the country the, here and the, there. The yearly or, or bi-yearly, bi-annual uh, London fight night card is still pretty yeah. good. And they do Miami now, yeah. uh, you know, once a year, twice a year, they're, they're going to other markets still selectively. But it's not the it used to be every single week the UFC is in another city and then they go back to Vegas for the pay-per-views. And when you you know what, it's probably way better for the commentary team. Yeah, it is. I'm sure. And the thing (laughs) was, though, that when all your pay-per-views are in Vegas, you can just bump one fight from pay-per-view to pay-per-view. You know, you say, oh, yeah, this fight, we 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 need a title fight. This, This person wants to fight for the belt. In this two-month range, we're yeah. going to be holding four pay-per-views in Vegas over those two months or three months or whatever. Any one of those will work. Yeah. Now it's, oh, Israel Adesanya wants a title fight in the fall. We're going to Australia on one date. Yep. Whoever is going to fight for the belt has to be ready. Yep. And that's – it's just more hidebound. It's more clearly – structured and it's to a degree that you can now look at the UFC schedule months out and and be like oh I can guess who's going to be on every single card remind me or or clarify me we will get to the fights in just a moment but this is this is interesting um was there was this a fake story or was there a moment there where it seemed that Islam Makachev was not going to be fighting Charles Oliveira because Oliveira wasn't wasn't available in October yeah uh both two things and Islam had to be on the Abu Dhabi card two things uh, the moment Charles Oliveira won and beat Benil Dariush, Islam Makachev he clearly immediately lost all interest in fighting the Dariush Oliveira winner. Mm. Right after that fight, he came out and he's like, yeah, I don't really know. There's this Poirier Gagey fight coming up. We should mm-hmm. look at that. Uh you know, I I beat this guy, basically. I'm not that interested in a fight against somebody I already beat. Mm-hmm. That was the first thing that happened. Then, later on, Oliveira was like, I can't fight in October. I'm not going to be ready. I just won't. I won't be ready. It can't happen. And so then it became like there was not, not like two or three weeks ago, there was a moment where Makachev was calling out Leon Edwards. Yeah. Trying mm-hmm. to see if he could get Leon Edwards to fight him in October. Yeah. There they were talking, you know, we were wondering, could the winner of Poirier Gagey be ready to turn around in two months? And both of them were like, uh no. <laughs> Have you seen our last fight? Yeah. That's not gonna happen. That's not gonna happen. And so then it's like, are we gonna are they gonna throw Armand Saryukin or like yeah. uh Mateusz Gamrot in and a it was, fight. It was largely because Islam had to fight on this one specific date, right? Exactly. Like that was a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing. And so they must have turned around and thrown extra money at Charles Oliveira and said, look, 
Yeah. You can you can be ready for this event. We will pay you enough. Well, good for Chucky. Hopefully, hopefully he can buy an, another set of even brighter veneers. Yes. That would be sick. He just comes in and just takes finally takes off his mouthpiece at the end. He's a diamond studded grill. That's that right. Would, that would rule. <laughs> but yeah, that, so it is, you know, it's more hidebound. It's more like. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's more difficult. And the the nice thing is, I think it puts fighters in a better position to negotiate than ever. But sure, yeah, we need you for this card. Okay, well, yeah, what are you willing to pay me? Like Sean Strickland has, he came out and said recently, like I am negotiating with the UFC to fight at you is Israel Adesanya hey. at UFC two ninety. Uh, Not a fight I care about, but good for him. Yeah, uh, what UFC two ninety? Yeah, UFC two ninety three. I'm negotiating with them because. Drikas Duplessis has already said he can't do it. He can't get ready in time to take that fight. Yeah. So Strickland is the guy. He is the option. And it feels like you should, like a few years ago, it would just be Drikas and they would just wait a minute exactly. until he they was ready. Back to the next <laughs> Vegas fight, the, the next Vegas yeah. pay-per-view, and they would <laughs> say, that oh, can't happen would, anymore. No. So they're going to fight at the apex. That's exactly. Yeah. No. All right. Anyway, this is a anyway. good card. It's not uh, yeah. super high on relevance, but it obviously has an incredible main event and it's got a ton of name value and I will take it. Yeah, it's there's it's fun top to bottom. And there there are, you know, Dustin Poirier, Justin Cagey, winner of that is in mm-hmm. line to to fight for a title. Blahovic mm-hmm. uh, I'm actually sh- kind of shocked that the UFC didn't just throw a belt on this fight. Yeah, me too. Uh, they seem to have just forced a second champion to relinquish. Yeah, exactly. They they forced a second champion to uh, give up his belt, and they leaked, uh, they, they sent an email to a bunch of bars being like, oh, there are two title fights on the top of this pay-per-view. Oh. Fourier Gagey for the BMF title and Blahovich Pereira for the light heavyweight title. And then they they immediately sent out, uh, you know, notes to everybody. Once the media jumped on that story, they were like, oh, no, 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 no that was just a mistake. So I was I was waiting for them to turn around and be like, no, 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 nope. this will be a title fight. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised it isn't as well. Yeah. Anyway, and, great fight. Yeah. And then everything else is just fights. Nobody yeah. else is in, in contention. They're fights with people I know. Yeah. But they don't mean an awful lot outside of that. Yeah. But let's jump into this Poirier Gagey fight, a rematch that is 100,000% worth making. Yeah. No doubt about that. Um, and um, and one that is really no easier to call than it was the last time around. Yeah, honestly, I think the thing we saw at a Gagey against Fiziev was maybe an actual, like, tactical step forward in Gagey's game. Yeah, still with its, like, little frustrating Gagey-isms. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, like... Still, yeah, I mean, that's the interesting thing is that the first matchup was difficult to call and it played out like a fight that was difficult to call. Yeah. Like Dustin Poirier's win both makes a lot of sense in retrospect and also is like it feels really lucky. Yeah, there's the Gagey up up to that point and through that point was a fighter who he would often start out his fights seeming like he was losing a brawl and just kind of swinging wild and forcing himself on his opponent 
and forcing them backward, but getting hit a lot. Yeah. And you were always waiting in his fights. It was it was a slow build of momentum and pressure. Forcing himself on his opponent. I think you're thinking of Adesanya Costa. <laughs> oh Lord. Go on. Those two. Has any has any <laughs> Has any straight fight ever been gayer than that? It wasn't a straight fight. Yeah. Go on. Anyway, um, the Poirier. So Gagey to that point, he'd always been like this fighter where you you were waiting for the moment where the momentum would turn. Yes. Where his pressure would just start to break somebody, and the moment they started to break, he would run them over. Yeah. And the notable thing about the Poirier fight was that like you just you were right there on the cusp of that. And you could watch it all over and over again where you see Gagey push forward and you're like, this is it. This is the point. Here it comes. And it just never happened. And he just ended up a, a half step, a tiny half step behind for three was, rounds. And story then, wise, like it was incredibly similar to the fight that had just preceded it for Gagey. Yeah. The fight yeah. with Alvarez, where yeah. He was in there. The opponent was landing an, a ton of clean shots through the first couple rounds. Yeah. Um, doing a good amount of body work. Alvarez a better job with that than Poirier. Poirier's always been quite yeah. a bit of a headhunter, but he did work the body in that fight. Uh, that was part of his game plan. And both guys ended up being completely cr- crippled by Gaethje's yeah. low kicks right before they knocked him out. Yep. Um. And uh, so, yeah, like like I said, it feels both reproducible and completely up to chance whether you could do that again. Uh-huh. And then the other difficulty in calling this one is that um, more so than Poirier, I think, Gaethje's style has changed. Yeah. And so it's a, it's tough. I mean, it seems unavoidable that the fight will be insane. These guys are both of them are brawlers to their core. Yeah, you can't. I mean, Poirier, we've talked a lot about how he's best off his back foot. Yeah. Um, But the thing about Dustin Poirier is if you don't push him back, he will swarm you. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, if you do push him back, like Poirier is not going to stick the jab and outmaneuver you all the time. He's not going to try to box you out. He's going to. Poirier has a mindset of one of us is going to die. I think it should be you. But yeah. Come on and try me. Yeah. He is a technical brawler. He is like Juan Manuel Marquez. And then he's like, walk into the wood chipper and hit me with whatever you got, because that's my chance to hit you back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, he's a smart brawler. He's a skillful brawler. Um, these last maybe like, I don't know, eight years or something. He's been a really tricky, crafty fighter, but the fights are still brawls. Yeah, it's either you let Poirier come after you and he'll just pour a bunch of offense on you and hurt you really badly and you'll get a chance to clip him when he's going forward. Yeah. Or you go after him and you'll get chances. You'll feel like you're getting chances to clip him. Sure. But what you're really doing is you're walking right into the best counters, you know, really, really sharp counter punching. Yeah, and I, I had a really good time. Part of his game, I had a really good time watching through Poirier's like uh, history, uh, going back to the Jim Miller fight, mm-hmm. and that was one that was just after his loss to Michael Johnson, and um, 
looking at it now, I felt a little bad for Dustin that Joe Rogan went out there in the post-fight interview and was immediately like, you said you were going to be more defensively responsible, and then you immediately got into a brawl. Yeah. Um, and Dustin was very self-aware and candid as always. He was like, uh, yeah, you know, like uh, my corner yelled at me about that after round one. They said, what are we doing? And he was like, I'm fighting. And they're like, no, you're brawling. Let's go out there and have a good fight. And he did tighten it up a little, but he said, I like to fight, man. And yeah. uh, that sort of contextualizes all of the Poirier's fights since. That, yes, he has developed more patience. That was ages ago, but it's still a part of his game. He has become a significantly better finisher because of it. Because once yeah. he does get that moment to break through, the combinations he puts together are brilliant. They are not overrushed. He does not just get clipped and... Uh, have his momentum broken while trying to go for it, but he yeah. is still relentless and his fights are still crazy. That's who Dustin Poirier is. He is at heart a maniac brawler who likes, he thrives on the feeling of a double edged fight Yep, where he is just walking that tightrope the whole time, but he's good at it. Um, Justin Gaethje, uh, you know, going back to the Tony Ferguson fight, has been much, much less insistent on being an all-out pressure fighter. Yeah. It's... Sometimes it's looked brilliant. Yeah. Uh, most notably against the the ghost of Tony Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's looked a little like... Gaethje has adopted a style where he has basically ceded the initiative to his opponents. Mm-hmm. And so the brawl still comes to him. <laughs> yeah. You know, because like, uh, and this was, this was Phil's point. We talked about this the other day is that Gaethje is still fundamentally a fighter who will like do a front flip when he misses a punch. Yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, even if he has developed a more patient style, he is still going to chuck absolutely everything he has at his opponent when he sees his opportunity and therefore end up in some wild exchanges. The yeah. really good thing against Fazeev was the jab. Yeah, it was... I really feel like what happened in that Fazeev fight is we saw Gagey, uh a version of him that A, met Fazeev with that kind of brutal power over swinging early on. Sure. And put enough hesitation in Fazeev to uh, back off and give Gagey space where... Yeah. Normally, we would see Gagey just sort of go a bit negative and seed the initiative in the past. Yeah. Where, like, oh, well, you know, Fiziev backed off and he's like, okay, I'm not going to press this guy so much because every time I do, I get hit really hard. And so that's where you would see sort of like the Michael Chandler fight in the past where, yeah, uh, Gagey still won that fight. He's a, he's, he's a cleaner uh, puncher and, more uh, consistent technician than Better Chandler. cardio than Chandler. Better can cardio and all that. But where he just kind of, he let Car Chandler keep having the initiative and the ability to stay in the fight and have the fight the way he wanted it. Even as he was losing it, you know? Yeah. He, he gave Chandler a sense of comfort late in fights that Chandler rarely has. Yeah. And what we saw against Fiziev was the moment Fiziev backed off and said, oh, okay, well, I guess I shouldn't just car crash into you a bunch. That's not a good idea. Then Gagey just was like, great, I will stick you with the jab. 
Yeah, and I think there was some of that in the Chandler fight as well. There were ups and downs, but there was also, it was less of Gaethje overthrowing everything. Yeah. It was him, you know, throwing away a couple shots to put out some nice, efficient punches. Notably, the uppercut he dropped Chandler with in the second Mm -hmm. round was like that. Really well set up and not crazily overthrown, which is why it worked so well. But this is the thing that makes it difficult for me to assess Gaethje's new style is that there is a sort of, is he going to find it Yeah. or not? Because it, it, it took him ages to think of jabbing Fiziev. Took him like yeah. a round and a half or more. And then when he found it, it was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this, this just lands automatically. Yeah, well, and I, like I said, I think part of that is that he had to convince Fiziev to stop pressing him. Yeah, but you know what's a great way to stop someone pressing you? The jab. I yeah I know he I didn't think, think of it first. No, it 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 it's I I think it's definitely for for Gagey, those kind of tools are management tools after a boundary has already been established. Yeah, you know. But to get to me, like that is the best first line of defense. It's just you can't get through this left hand. It's lined up. It's yeah. like a you know uh, the the best jabbers they 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 hold their left hand like they're holding some they're sticking someone up with a gun yeah like okay take a step before me I'm gonna shoot you in the face yeah. and for whatever reason Gaethje did not have that instinct it was only once you're right that Fiziev had slowed down that he found this incredibly effective super basic weapon yeah um so that's the thing I don't know what to expect from Gaethje. And the prospect of him having a fight with Poirier where he isn't insisting on pressuring um, is interesting and, like I said, difficult to figure out for different reasons. Yeah, because, I mean, Poirier, if, if Poirier is best off his, off his back foot when you're bringing the fight to him and he's getting to pick what shots he picks you off with, he's at his worst on his front foot when he's pressing forward and... He is swarming and he can be very effective and he can pick great shots and he can do great oh, yeah. work, but he will almost always end up walking blind into something. It yeah, is, he's even that, that shifting right hand is such a fundamental part of his uh, come for game. And it's not like it doesn't work, but no, it's good. But it it's still I mean, it's it's almost a thing where to me, what what the way Poirier style works best is. If you give him the initiative, he will step forward with a couple with, you know, the shifting right hand or with a a, a, a swarming two or three punch combination. He will get caught. He will step backward. You will think that he is too hurt. You will think this is your moment yeah. for me to step forward. And then he'll interrupt your turn. And then, yes, he'll interrupt you and he'll he'll pivot out of the pocket or he will just even take shots and, you know, move his roll with shots against the fence, whatever. And he will. Yeah, he'll interrupt you mid combination off his back foot where he is much calmer and cleaner, frankly. Yeah. And but it is a it is a very dangerous game for Poirier to play because it's always, you know, if he's not the one just responding to pressure. Well, I mean, even in all senses, it's a dangerous game to play because he's either moving forward or getting hit or he's moving backwards and getting hit. And it's either he's going first or he's going second. Yeah. He does get hit less uh, when he's like in fencing mode though, because he's 
his defense is often the first layer that sets up the shot. Yeah. Uh, that he, that he interrupts you with. He, um, he's a cleaner fighter he, moving backward. Yeah. Or yeah. at least, uh, at least, you know, standing his ground rather yeah. than shifting, which I, I have a feeling we might get more of that. Like just because Gaethje's not going to be pressing doesn't mean Poirier has to be storming after him the whole time. No, it doesn't mean he has to. I just wonder if he will. Oh, he will at points. Doubtless. Yeah. Um, but I also think he can do great work with his jab and his straight punches. Um, he's just a more effective long fighter than Gaethje. And, uh, but then that, that also is a fight where Gaethje might just find those low kicks again. Yeah. And maybe he gets crushed for throwing them as he did last time. Maybe Poirier is a little more ready to find that counter where he sort of anticipates the kick and like pre- loads up his back leg so that as the kick connects, he can just drop onto it with the left straight. But um, mm-hmm. I-, I am still going to pick Poirier because yeah. um, fundamentally, Poirier is just not a fighter that it's easy to break. Yeah. And these are the people that Gaethje beats, you know, like one way or the other, they're people who start hot and fall off. Uh, which is why he didn't beat Alvarez and he didn't beat Poirier. He did beat Chandler. He did beat Viziv. Mm-hmm. There's a very clear distinction between these two kinds of fighters. Um, Poirier thrives in horribly difficult fights. Yeah. And um, he is, I think, still significantly sharper and more consistent in the pocket. Uh, that was absolutely the case in their first fight. Gaethje's defense is a little more nuanced than it used to be, but it is still something that Poirier can work around much in the same way he did before, sticking the jab out there, getting either the guard or, or a duck or whatever, and then finding body shots and uppercuts um, and hooks around the guard to exploit those predictable defenses. And um, probably I have to assume he'll be ready to maybe check a couple low kicks this time. Yeah as he did at points uh, against like Conor McGregor and against Chandler, people have tried to low kick him and he is, he's a little more aware of making, making somebody's shin hurt for doing that early than he certainly than he used to be. Yeah. I I can't not pick Poirier in a five round fight, but, but you know, this is a different version of a fight that was already, difficult to call in advance and looking back at it was completely chaotic and Dustin Poirier was like about to lose. Yeah. So. Yeah, I, I, I have to pick Poirier as well. A big part of that too is uh, looking at like Gagey's loss to Charles Oliveira mm-hmm. where, you know, a, a good enough puncher who can storm forward on Justin Gagey. Yeah they don't necessarily find him in the best defensive positions, even, even if as he's being more responsible, maybe being less aggressive and while he can, he can hit you really hard when you do enter the pocket against him. He's not necessarily well set up to take the first shot. Yeah. You know, he's, he, so much of his offense is about not necessarily making a good defensive read, but making a good read on what he can bring to you with the offense that you will be bringing to him. Yeah. You know, and against good strikers against, against good punchers. That that's a, that's a lot to see. Like 
when Poirier is on the back foot, when somebody's bringing the fight to Poirier, as we talked about, like, often his defense will be the first disruptor. You know, you watch his fight. Uh, you you watch Poirier's fight with um, Chandler. And there's a point early on where Chandler is like teeing off on Dustin Poirier. Yeah. And really cracks him. Mm-hmm. And every time Chandler does, Poirier just does a really excellent job of rolling away from the shots that Chandler is throwing mm-hmm. and of slipping and of making sure that things that are clipping him, that his, he's really focused on them. Yep. Keeps his guard up, paying attention and, to eyes on the opponent. Yeah. Like yep. uh, Adesanya when he knocked up Pereira, like Robbie yeah. Lawler in many moments in his career. Yeah. And staying cool, staying cool, looking for his chance. Yeah. And so it, it's what makes him so dangerous in those points where people think that they have Poirier on the ropes. Yeah. That's why and, I say he's like Marquez. Yeah. That's one man. Well, Marquez in a nutshell is getting hurt. Like, it's not like these are moments where Poirier is doing great. Yeah. But that is the moment when he becomes somehow more relaxed and focused yep. and realizes that he has an opportunity to crush you when you are no longer thinking of your own defense. Yeah. And for Gagey, I think that that's much less pronounced. Yeah. Gagey is much more of a fighter who has to meet you physically on those terms and scare you off. Or he's going to get hit really hard in those kinds of exchanges. You know? Yeah. And given that dynamic, I just think there's there's more room for Poirier to win more kinds of this fight than there are for Gagey. Gagey will have to, he'll have to walk a wire where he is either doing what we've seen him do a lot more lately, which is give up the opportunity to lead and sting Poirier hard enough when Poirier comes forward to push Poirier into a distance game where Gagey's kicking game can then do a whole lot of the work. Or he's going to have to come forward and he is going to have to enter exchanges with Poirier where he can take, he can take Poirier's defensive responsibility away probably with low kicks again and make him focus on something else other than just his punching game so that Poirier isn't so apt to slip the shots that land up top Mm -hmm. and answer back. And the thing that we saw out of their first fight, which had a lot of that, Uh was that no matter how hurt Poirier got, no matter how good a job Gagey ever did of that, he could never actually get Poirier off that game. He could never actually break him down with pressure to the point that Poirier didn't have the better answer than Gagey's than the question Gagey was asking. Mm-hmm. And that's he's just a more flexible fighter, you know. He's just a, yeah, and so I yeah I got to pick him too. Very difficult unless you're like an A scrappler, which by yeah. the way, Gagey, Gagey I believe has talked about. I'm going to do my wrestling. Yeah, I don't buy it. No. Why would anybody buy that? <laughs> I don't even think if he did it, that it would lead to anything good. Because I think Poirier is a better grappler. Yes. Um, it's not outright easy to take down unless you are 
a specialist yourself. And uh, can anyone imagine Justin Gaethje somehow doing well, trying to commit to like a control grappling game? I don't even think he could do it. No, it absolutely would, not. It would be the worst version of him. Um, yeah. Gaethje has one takedown in the last half decade. And I can't remember when he, how many he hit in World Series of Fighting, but it was not a lot. Yeah. Can and I just mention, in, um, oh, go on. That was in his fight against Rafael Fiziev. And you know how much control time that takedown out of him? I'm going to guess seven seconds. Five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just not in him. It's not in him. And Poirier is not a guy to ever be controlled. No. You have to... You have to have the Khabib Nurmagomedov slash Charles Oliveira ability to yeah. turn a small technical mistake into a landslide. Right. To beat Dustin Poirier on the ground. Yeah. Like you have to be a generationally great grappler to take him out of the fight. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just uh, highlight a couple moments? Um, because, of course, I've rewatched their first fight. Little interactions that I really enjoyed remembering. Um, Gaethje poked Dustin Poirier in the eyes twice <laughs> uh, in the fight. And then shortly after the second one, um, Poirier, I think more incidentally than Gaethje, just got Gaethje back with one. Maybe it was deliberate. <laughs> and uh, Gaethje kind of laughed and he was like, that was a good one, though. And Por this is what I love about Poirier is I think he's a nice, respectful guy. But he clearly has a massive chip on his shoulder oh, and is boiling with rage. Yeah. He is full of anger. And um, and uh, so he was like, that was a good one. And Poirier was like, hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not as good as the second one. And then walked back to his corner. <laughs> no, that... Just not to interject here, but no, that Chandler fight that Poirier had. Oh yeah, where Chandler like fish hooked him and all this stuff. Like, and and afterwards Poirier was just wildly vacillating between like calling Chandler sir and telling him to go fuck himself. Yes, it was the most hilariously revealing moment of Dustin Poirier. He was clearly here. enraged, but he's still yeah. He's like he's not a mean guy, but. He, he is full of anger and resentment. You don't get into this sport unless you are dealing with a deep well of unresolved issues. And then he went back to his corner after the eye poke. This was in round three, I believe. So a moment before he knocks Gaethje out. And he goes into his cornerman, who he knows well, Mike Brown and whoever else was there. He's like, ice my leg. And then the cut man is working on him. And he says, ice the top of my eye, sir. Because he doesn't know the cut man as well. So he called him sir. <laughs> I found that very charming. <laughs> It's it is really I love Dustin Poirier, man. <laughs> he's he's a ton of fun, honestly. He, he he's a, a gift to this sport. Yeah. Amazing fight. Uh cannot wait to see it. Completely made up belt. And if that's what they need to do to make it happen, then I am all for it. Yeah, to get a five rounds out of this, that's yeah, absolutely that's what we need. All right. Uh that brings us to uh, the odds on the fight. Poirier is the favorite. By a small margin, open at minus 118, currently down at minus 139. KG opened at plus 107, currently up at plus 125. That brings us to a light heavyweight bout, Jan Blahovich, Alex Pereira. And uh, the uh, the soft pedal is over for Alex Pereira. Yep. 
this is this is this is you know what a I'm glad Alex Pereira is moving up. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a fighter ideally suited to light heavyweight. He should just go to heavyweight already. He, he should just go to heavyweight. That would he's, be fun too. Literally, he's moving up, and he is bigger than Jan Blachowicz. Yep. Nice. No, Six he's foot giant. four. He's got exactly the kind of absurd, snappy power you need to be at light heavyweight. Uh, it, it'll be a great. It's a great division for him. But man, also it feels like Jan might just be kind of perfectly. This is such a. This is such a weird fight because. It's a fight where both, I feel like, Pereira is perfectly situated to be the kind of guy that can beat Jan Blahovich, but doesn't usually, but can. Mm-hmm. And also the kind of guy that will absolutely lose to Jan Blahovich and has a lot lately. Which is to say that Pereira, you know, outside of his... Uh, terrific left hook really sets up a lot of his offense through feints and low kicks and the jab and a sort of slow and steady pressure Mm -hmm. that banks on your fear of what he's going to do next. And Blahovich has over time just become such a terrific neutralizer of ticky tack offense, of the kind of offense that is meant to build. That for sure, yeah. You know, um, particularly the particularly the kicks. Particularly the kicks. I, I think this is a rare thing to say about any light heavyweight. Jan Blahovich is probably the best kick defender in the sport. I, I remember I said the same thing and people got really pissed off at me because they're like, oh, Jose Aldo, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, okay, look, I'm not sure. saying he's the only guy that can defend kicks out there. And yeah, Aldo and, is... And Jose is good at it. He's great at it, too. Of he's course. great at it, too. There are other great fighters that... But the amount that Jan has built it into his game yeah. is just so singularly notable. And it's especially singularly notable at light heavyweight. Yeah. Where... None of these, none of these assholes have defense. I wish there was a UFC stats column just for Jan and a couple other fighters for kicks checked. Yeah, because nobody checks kicks as constantly as this guy. He he really is, and he builds off of it too. He mm-hmm. makes having checked your kick a part of his offense, mm-hmm. as it, any good defense should be, right? Yeah, exactly. He's just great at it. Yeah. And, He's also built, you know, he's got a style of, he's got that, uh, is, uh, that um, Alex Volkanovsky style of sort of coiling himself back into his punches and his defense so that if you are going to try to just sort of patiently stalk him down, then the little the setup offense, even you know your jabs, your your one twos, the 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 any offense that you build to walk forward and to try and make him uncomfortable, instead has the effect of making you uncomfortable. Yeah, because you know 
that you know in in uh Volkanovsky's case it's a much more well considered you know single hard counter shot but in Blahovich's case it's the blocko blitz is coming and it's a, it's it, admittedly not as good as Volkanovsky it's for not sure. as good <laughs> it's not as good but it's at light heavyweight so it is also intensely more powerful and the potential to damage you severely with it is much higher, you know? And Pereira is not himself the cleanest defensive fighter, especially not when he's pressuring, you know? Yeah. It, it, every fight he's had with uh, Israel Adesanya was an example where if Adesanya was patient enough and if he was well-considered enough, he could hurt Alex Pereira really badly for coming forward. Yeah. Their last three fights that happened. Yeah. And in the last one, he knocked him out. Yeah. So there is that side of this for Pereira where it's just like, man, Blahovich is uniquely set up to be a terrible clash. And he's got the wrestling too. That It's not a great wrestling game, but it is a big hulking wrestling game yep. that has a lot more power to it than anybody that Pereira has had to face yeah, yet. And let's be real. Great wrestling game is not the uh, bar you have to meet no. to take down uh, Alex Pereira. Is Israel Adesanya a great wrestler? No. no. Not only the wrestling, but he didn't uh, appear to know what to do on the ground after getting taken down. I know he's been focusing on it. He's been working on it. Likely we'll see some moderate improvements, but it's just not his comfort zone. And it's just not something you can get that good at that quickly necessarily. Yeah. You know, it's all, it, he, he was he was not good enough to out grapple uh, Israel Adesanya a year ago. Mm -hmm. it is not going to be night and day a year later. Yeah, Adesanya, who got soundly outgrappled by Jan Blachowicz. Yeah. Uh, on the flip side, because he is so able to, or willing to see these pressure tools, mm -hmm. fighters who can avoid his blitz and who can... Uh, just sort of pick away at him and pick their spots have been able to in the past either have a very neutral fight with him mm -hmm. or beat him you know we've seen like Jimmy Manoa and uh, Gustafson and then or you know in the case of Tiago Santos if, if Pereira is willing to play off his back foot Wait for that blitz to come in and just catch him being wild. Oh, yeah. Beca and Pereira, with his left hook, is really well suited to catching some catching a blitz like the one Blahovich is going to throw at yeah. some point and make him pay just as bad as Tiago Santos did for it. Yeah, you know? and, and, and also, I mean, what, uh, what ultimately happened in uh, Blahovich's fight with Teixeira? Yeah. Yes, he got wrestled early, yeah. but he was uh, he was back on in fo on form in round two. Yeah, and was landing a lot of clean jabs. Was you know doing all the great Blakovich things. In the beginning of the end was when Tashedo walked in uppercut left hook, 
Yep. And the left hook just blasted Blachowicz. He took it. Guy's a durable fighter. Yep. But uh, Pereira, I think, hit significantly harder even than Glover Teixeira. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing I'll mention is that um, certain a certain amount of light heavyweightness and middleweightness in the case of Israel Adesanya has, I think, bolstered the impression of Jan Blachowicz's defense. Yeah. He is defensively aware, but puts himself in vulnerable positions and relies a lot on seeing things coming and swatting punches out of the way with his hands and leaning back. And do you know who else, who in most fights is great defensively, statistically, who else meets that exact description? Mm. Sean Strickland. Yeah. Who just got goddamn nuked by Alex Pereira. The problem that somebody like Adesanya had against Blachowicz is very, I think, specific to Adesanya, mm-hmm. which is that he gave Blachowicz about 85 million feints. So many feints, the commentary was dazzled. My God, Blachowicz is yeah. biting on all these feints. But he wasn't biting with overcommitted offense. And for that reason, Israel was not getting what he wanted. And yeah. really struggled to build off of the feints, despite the fact that he was getting one of the things you want to get out of feints, which is reactions of any kind. Yeah. Alex Pereira is much more willing and able to exploit any kind of reaction that he gets from his his methodical pressure. He feints and sees Blokovic reaching with the right hand. He's going to jab him and hook off the jab. He's not mm-hmm. going to think twice about Oop, that. He's going to see that's an opening. Yeah. Um, and that defense can be gotten through. You it know, can. It's, it like Sean Strickland's. It, it is functionally very good, but at a certain, there's a certain level of striking know-how, which just sort of, like any defense, there are ways around it, ways of drawing it out and ways of punishing it. And uh, Pereira understands how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, Pereira is a quite a good kickboxer. Uh, he has yeah. some shortcomings himself. I also thought his last fight was his best kickboxing performance ever, like outside of MMA even. I know uh-huh. he got knocked out, but he was looking sharp. He was. Sharp and consistent and light on his feet, and he was working his jab and finding his range really easily in that fight. Um, so for me, the really big question here, like I, my gut says Pereira. Yeah. But I am super concerned about the wrestling because I, yeah. I don't care what anyone says, whatever the diehard Pereira fans say, he's not a good wrestler or grappler. No. No. He's got taken down by some very bad fighters and seemed pretty clueless afterwards. Yeah. Um, and there's also the fact that Blokovich is uh, explicitly uh, using Polish magic on him. Yeah, that is actually a big con- part of my concern that I didn't talk about yet. Is he's, that... he's hexing Pereira. Yeah, yeah. He has a so. little sheet of lead in which he has inscribed a crude drawing of Pereira and like crossed out his genitals, crossed out his heart, you know, <laughs> called on the lords of the underworld to curse this man, let his children... Uh, disappoint him, let his let his gonads wither, let his progeny be not, and then thrown it into the local well. Yep. Poisoning a small Polish village <laughs> with, with lead poisoning, but p- quite possibly poisoning Alex Pereira as well. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I, you might say, well, certainly Pereira can counter that with some sort of Brazilian magic. Uh-huh. I'm sure they have a rich history of magical arts. Yeah. But he's moved to Connecticut. Ooh, and there's no magic in Connecticut. Yeah, I mean, we're talking like Salem, you know, like... It was fake. Yeah. So Famously fake. I've seen the famous, crucible. Yeah, yeah, famously fake. So... I really think at that point the big magic edge goes to Blahovich. <laughs> um, um, I'm still gonna pick Pereira. I'm gonna pick Blahovich. I am just too concerned, not only about the wrestling, but that it's just you know, Pereira. He's big enough for 205. He's got the right size the right feeling and honestly to middleweights moving up to light heavyweight is like one of the best moves that a middleweight can make yeah, no kidding he's more than big enough for two of he's more than big enough it's not that it's but you know i do wonder just a bit about him being ready for uh, that level of physicality in tie-ups that sure he has before this only had to face in the gym yeah yeah, of so. course. I mean, he is training with Tashira. At some point, he's going to pick up some more experience and comfort in the grappling. But um, yeah. but it doesn't, you know, I you just know, don't. So much of his already scant takedown defense has relied on the fact that he's huge in the yeah. past. So. And, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going to pick Blahovich, but I love the fight. Yeah, I it's a fantastic matchup. And I'm... I'm yeah. Glad to see that they're not like trying to manufacture another. They 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 manufactured the Adesanya Pereira series. I'm glad they did. Yep. Great fights. Huge feather in Adesanya's cap that he finally vanquished his boogeyman uh-huh. in the end. Um, great story. But the time for that is done. Pereira is moving up. He should be in big important fights. Yep. He's a he's a big important fighter. And yeah, I love this matchup. And I I yeah I truly like. It's kind of a coin flip pick for me. Like, Pereira is so obviously dangerous. I think Blokovic is going to expect some things that work against every other MMA fighter to work yeah. that that are just not going to be very effective and are going to be very risky against Pereira. But Pereira can't grapple. So, yeah. <laughs> and he might not be ready for Blokovic's kick defense either. And yeah. you don't know what, what that's going to change for his game. Because Yeah, and it's not to say Blahovic isn't going to have lots of room to be effective with his own striking either. Blahovic yeah. has a great jab. He's got nice, steady um, uh, adjustment kind of footwork. He's and a reasonably good counterpuncher. To blitz off his back foot. If Pereira is like, if, if Pereira is slowly walking him down. Sure. Blahovich can he can burst forward with some real power that you know Sean Strickland does not have the ability to do that. No, that is absolutely true. Uh, and Sean Strickland is, it must be said, more vulnerable than Blah. Blahovich starts from a better fundamental position. Yeah, yeah. His stance is good. It makes sense. His guard is up and ready. Yeah. If Sean Strickland makes one mistake against Pereira, it's over. Yeah. Blahovich. Uh, uh, Opened at minus 156. He's currently at minus 113. Uh, Pereira opened at plus 122. He's currently at plus 102. Keep the odds close. Yeah. Make it fun. It's an awesome fight. Love it. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. That brings us to a welterweight bout. Stephen Thompson, Michelle Pereira. And um, I like that we're getting Pereira into these kinds of fights now. I'm not sure this is the best one of them. 
How do you mean? For him or as a matchup in general? For him. Mm. But I'm, you're, you're, it's your turn to talk about it. I just wanted to like throw that out there. That Yeah, I personally don't like that we're getting Michelle Pereira into these fights because I still haven't forgiven him for trying to get good. Yeah. He's supposed to be stupid. He's supposed to be trying oh. random low percentage things nonstop. He's supposed to be backflipping. When's the last time he did a flip in the cage? Mm-hmm. Molly agrees. Hey, just like I gotta, I gotta pause really quick. <laughs> just mute and I'll talk. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, so the thing with the thing with Michelle Pereira is that he he has tried to improve, um, and has successfully done it. But in um, I would say this is the frustrating part. Largely, the improvements have been negative in nature. Um, he has not developed a great depth of outside fighting skill. What he has developed is the desire to keep the fight at that range and to limit engagements to ones that favor him. And so we get a Pineda who moves around a lot more. Well, he moves around the same, but with different goals. He moves around defensively, evasively. We see a lot of him circling along the cage. Um, and, but I will say something that has impressed me with Pereira uh, in recent fights is um, he has a sort of round winning awareness. Even if not that, he has an awareness of how to manage the momentum of a fight, which to mm-hmm. me is the sign of a good fighter. Yeah. That is we're like a thing. Stephen Thompson here, right? Not Michelle Pereira. We're talking Michelle Pereira. Oh, we're talking Michelle Pereira. Okay. That he, this has impressed me. Uh, yeah. Because the reason I've been frustrated with his change is that it's. I was saying it's largely negative. Yeah. Just doing less and allowing the opponent to do less. But one thing I've liked is a certain Jose Aldo esque understanding of oh now is the moment when you th- yeah. you're starting to build momentum now I have to punish you. Mm-hmm. This has come in clutch in a couple recent Michelle Pineda fights where he has had an opponent who starts building momentum. You think Pineda is maybe gassing because he still moves a lot and he's still yeah. inefficient with it, but he's, he kind of knows how to parcel out his energy. He has a function. I think he has a functional anxiety. That I, I would say that is like it builds so that when he's, when things aren't going well, you can yeah. tell he feels like he's like, no, I got to do something. I can, yeah. okay, something's got to happen for me. But it is, it has come out in a is a craftier way, or yeah. you know, he he's he's picking his spots well. Yep. And knowing when to when is the right moment to dump a bunch of energy to change the opponent's mind and to 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 shift the momentum of the fight. Yeah. Um. This is genuinely the sign of a savvy he, round he has round winning a fighter. Much better fight winner than I ever yes. thought he could be. Yeah. And I think being negative is part of that. Just sure. perplexing people who don't know how, but, but also, um, knowing when to be very proactive. So, uh, yeah. you know, we're actually seeing a style materialize here. Yep. Um, given that he's going to do a lot of weird striking, it does seem like a fundamentally dangerous fight though, because that is something Steven Thompson is still exceptionally good at. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing for me. Is it you fight a subtractive, I'll pick my spots and be a little kind of funky. 
striking game with yeah. Stephen Thompson. And that's still just something he's just going to beat over and over and over yeah. again because his 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 fundamentals, and I want to say like fundamentals like, oh, he's got perfect form and perfect XYZ and he's the best kickboxer in the sport or all that. But his his footwork that he uses and his striking form that he uses, they are so just absolutely baked in that he can do he will just do it comfortably. Yeah. Round We've after round about after. this before. Stephen Thompson yeah. has become a victim of the hardcore fans like Newton Cradle contrarianism. Yeah. Where all of this undue praise and all of this overrating these made up karate titles. Yeah. Uh, that a bunch of people who follow the sport very closely decided that actually Stephen Thompson isn't good. And that's yeah. wrong. No, he's very good. You don't have yeah. to think Stephen Thompson is the pinnacle of kickboxing technique to watch his fights and realize that he fully understands every single thing he is doing in the cage. Yep. He knows his range. He is out there using feints, using strikes to set up openings to draw uh, counterable offense out of the opponent. Stephen Thompson is a masterful fighter, a masterful striker yeah. in a very specific way, but uh, also surprisingly flexible, who is down to fight. If yeah. he has to, we'll slug it out with somebody. Um, Stephen Thompson is great. It was it was so funny because he was on you know he Conor McGregor brought him in to teach yeah yeah I saw those clips yeah and it was really just kind of hilarious because you see Stephen Thompson with like you know some like twenty year old MMA fighter and he's like all right we're gonna practice this little we talked about this with the that other guy that they brought in who was a Stephen Thompson you know a training partner mm-hmm. and he's just like yeah hey, here's a little like slide step double jab kind of thing <laughs> and he does it and it's just like the most natural fluid thing in the world yeah and you're like that's actually not something that you can just show to somebody and have them pick <laughs> up like yeah this person is gonna have to try that for like two months straight. To get the foot, this was also like I saw this re- recently again with like some conversation. It was uh, Mike Tyson talking about wanting to train Francis Ngannou, and Francis Ngannou asking Mike Tyson to train him to fight Tyson Fury. Uh huh. And there's a video that popped up of Mike Tyson training or showing Francis Ngannou a couple things, like uh, they were in a, a photo shoot together. Yeah. And Tyson was like, "Oh yeah, I know. If you're if you're really seriously going to fight Tyson Fury, here's a couple things you should do." Yeah, And you see Mike Tyson in there with Tyson Fury, and he's like, yeah, okay, and here's, you know, you got to, like, have this little slide step forward like this to throw this, and you got to get inside and throw like this and stuff like that. And you see Francis Ngannou, like, <laughs> looking at it and being like, oh, like that, and his feet just can't move. Yeah, how do like, I work this? They don't move like that. Yeah, it's longbow versus crossbow, Zane. Yeah. You know, the English had great success with their longbowmen, but ultimately it was the crossbow that dominated Europe. Main reason why? To be good at the longbow, you got to practice that shit for 20 years. Yeah. Crossbow, point and shoot. Yep. It's just a lot more practical for your average fighter. And that's the thing with Stephen Thompson. It's extremely specific skill set. Yeah. 
it's that he dumb. has spent his life cultivating. Yeah, and it but it is really well tuned to dealing yes. with kind of funky, uh, not that well tutored MMA strikers. Yeah, and we yeah we've said this many times. It seems to this style is not uh, going to be great in like kickboxing. No, it rarely is. There are a couple, you know, like uh, more uh, surfboard stancy karate guys that have made it in in kickboxing, but mostly it's like Kyokushin guys who just like stand like square kickboxers. Yeah. Who do well there. Um, but it seems particularly well suited for MMA. The distance is longer. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't have good defense. Yeah. And you have a ton of space to move around in these big loping karate movements and no corners to get trapped in. So yep. um, it, it is really much better suited to the octagon yeah. than it is to kickboxing, which is kind yeah. of ironic. Yeah. It, it, it works really well. Stephen Thompson is not the only guy who has shown that, but he is probably the best. Mm-hmm. He's definitely the best. Yeah. Uh, sorry, Leoto, but uh, Stephen Thompson is the karate king of, of MMA. Yep. Um, the thing is, is and, and this is this is like one of those long shot things. I'm not going to pick based on this because I've never seen Padetta like use his wrestling as a first layer to win a fight. But Stephen Thompson has clearly lost the ability to wrestle. Yeah, he's he's old to the point now that when when the speed is needed to actually counter something that he can't set up a move ahead with his footwork. Right. Yeah. Then the speed isn't there. I think that's exactly it. Yeah. He's anything that happens at, at striking range. Not only are these just is this the oldest muscle memory that Stephen Thompson has? These things are not going to be forgotten or yeah, but, uh, but he is dictating. He's out yeah. there fainting. He's probing with his jab and his kicks. Most of what happens at Stephen Thompson's range is happening because he wants it to. Exactly. And if it he, isn't happening the way himself, he wants it to, he yeah. gets out of there. He, he has set his, he's, he has set his feet in a position where the moment you step in, you are already in the wrong position. Yeah. And that yeah. is and fundamentally you the know. other side of that is that, yeah, the takedown ability was impressive, but it came much later in his life. Probably these these reactions have never been quite as automatic. Yeah. And when they surprise him, he just literally doesn't get to his defenses fast enough. Yeah. It, that, doesn't that, sprawl soon enough, doesn't get underhooks quickly enough. He just gets – it's not that he's been getting taken down or, like, worn out in grappling positions more. He is getting completely shocked and blasted off his feet. Yeah, it was notable in the Bilal Muhammad fight where Bilal is a thoughtful and not a fast fighter. And Muhammad just like, or Thompson just couldn't escape him at all. And and every entry was just like super clean. Oops, like I've accidentally connected my hands behind your legs. Like, how did you let this happen? Yeah. It is clearly like fallen out of Stephen Thompson's game. Um, I'm still going to pick him over Michelle Pereira because I yeah. think that would be a smart thing to sprinkle in, but I need to have it proven that Pereira can win a fight with that. Yeah, I think if he has to grapple, I, I especially think, too, if Pereira has to grapple, that that's the kind of thing that makes him really tired. Like, that Absolutely. requires so much constant energy output Yeah, that he can't, that that brings out his own worst game. Yeah, because he is fundamentally like too tense, too coiled, and ready to spring and explode, and too explosive with everything he does. Uh, he's not efficient. Yeah. 
So, and the understanding that we're largely seeing a striking match here, I am going to favor the master veteran over the guy who's kind of figuring out how to do it. Yep. Yep. It's really, we, you know, we saw even recently in the past few years with Jeff Neal and Kevin Holland that like other very decent MMA strikers who are very fast, much faster than Thompson is these days, even potentially like Neil, certainly Mm -hmm. Uh, they just can't, they cannot get in position well enough to compete with him there. Yeah. So. Yep. If you, even, even at like what, 41 years old or something, he's 40 now. Yeah. Even at 40 years old, if you are going to have a striking match with Steven Thompson, uh, you're probably going to lose. Yep. It's the only time he's ever lost that fight, really lost it, actually, is Anthony Pettis just absolutely catching him with the shot of a lifetime. Yeah, and it could happen. That can always happen. Yeah. But it's just, don't don't forget that was a fight where Stephen Thompson was comfortably winning. Yeah. And otherwise, like that Darren Till fight, I will argue to the death that Darren Till did not really win that fight. It was a nobody, terrible fight. To be so. fair, no nobody really won. Nobody that fight. really won it, but <laughs> but he you certainly know. didn't get outstruck. Yeah. All right. Odds on the bout. Thompson opened at minus two thirty three. Is currently minus one forty seven. So people are, I think he's you know people are fading him on age, which I can make. I I sure, can understand. Yeah. Uh, Pereira opened at plus 177, is currently at plus 133. All right. That brings us to a lightweight bout. Tony Ferguson, Bobby Green, and I'm picking Bobby Green. I am also picking Bobby Green. It's just, um, you know, Bobby, I will say this. I think Bobby Green has shown in his past couple fights against Drew Dober and Jared Gordon. Why he built the style he did over so many years. Yeah. That was a very risk averse and defensively minded style. Yeah. And not a power style at all. And I think his last couple years of success, he's really kind of as the young veterans tend to. Yeah. He has peaked late in his career and he's really been feeling himself these past few years. Yeah. And got old and bitter enough that he decided he wanted to start punishing his opponents. Yeah. (laughs) And I think he's suddenly being reminded of why he had the style he had. Yeah. Cause crazy shit happens. Cause crazy shit happens. And because he's not a big puncher, even when he sits down on stuff, Bobby Green is not a big puncher. He's he's a very sharp and accurate puncher. He's I mean, a very he's, sharp and accurate puncher. He can hurt people, no question. He can hurt people, but you spend enough time in front of Do- Drew Dober, right? And you'll get reminded, like you're not, and, and even like with Jared Gordon, like he was seriously just trying to punish Jared Gordon. Yeah, you could see he had a big chip on his shoulder where he was just sitting in front of him. He was letting Gordon get off first and land the cleaner shots. 
because he was so insistent on I need to punish you. I need to show you that you got to respect me. Mm-hmm. I don't love it. No, it, I think it's it's largely better for Bobby Green to work his way into that position slowly yeah. over the course yeah. of the fight. Yeah. Find but, his range, t- get the timing of the opponent. But unfortunately, Tony Ferguson is that car running down the road just losing parts as it goes. Yeah. And we always knew this was going to be the pro going to happen because Ferguson at his height would put himself through a ton of damage to land his own combinations and to build his own style. And his style was technical in his idea of technical but it was never built, it was rarely built on actually strong fundamentals. It was built on a lot of uh, speed that he was using and in, and in trained in motion that he was using to replace fundamentals. It was a very dominant cruise thing mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. Tony Ferguson, where, and we're kind of seeing this with Dominic Cruz too. Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, Dominic Cruz didn't get dropped for his entire career. And now in his past, like, four fights, he's been dropped five times. Yeah. It's just because there's a lot of stuff that Dominic Cruz was doing that it's not actually that defensively smart. It was not actually that... For all the years that Joe Rogan was just blasting off in his jeans about how Dominic Cruz is a perfect technician, um, like Stephen Thompson, but without nearly the same (laughs) fundamental, well, without nearly the same fundamental base. Dominic Cruz came up as just a pure wrestler, and he learned all this stuff. Yeah, what I mean is that it was a very there. Dominic Cruz had his own fundamentals; they were very specific to him. Yeah. And he figured out how to make a lot of things work and how to string them together systematically. This is not a knock on Dominic Cruz. No, I think no. his style is extremely impressive and genuinely yeah. innovative and creative. Yeah. Um, and not a knock on Tony Ferguson either, who no, was is his own brand of innovator and creator. But because they are, this is like Archie Moore compared to Roy Jones Jr. Like, mm-hmm. Archie Moore was a phenomenal, fundamentally sound technician, and that's why he was able to win his first title uh, when the like racist, the racist commission finally gave him a shot, and the racist opponents finally gave him a shot at like 36. Yeah, Roy Jones Jr. got slightly old, and the wheels fell off. Yeah, it, or, you know, they are both for the modern kids. It's why Bernard Hopkins was still fighting competitively exactly. well into his 40s. And exactly. Tony and uh, to- uh, James Tony as well. Absolutely. Where Tony got spectacularly Mike fat and old and out of shape and yeah. was still out there beating good fighters and hanging and hanging tough in very difficult fights. Where Mike Tyson hit like what, 30 and was yeah. just suddenly like, oh, yeah. you're not a competitive top boxer anymore. Right. Dominic Cruz and Tony Ferguson both have styles which require a certain amount of youthful vigor. They are more dependent on athleticism, on speed, 
and durability, certainly, and um, and stamina and the young man's willingness to just suicidally pull the trigger. Mm-hmm. And um, all of these things have faded enough that Tony Ferguson's style is now completely non-functional. Yeah. He steps in too close to people. He yeah. gives up his hips. Uh, something that he always used to be able to scramble out of, but now people are just, they can beat him to every position. Yeah. And he stands, he's had a style on the inside that was based on like a lot of Wing Chun, where it was, you know, he, he, the best face for MMA, as we know. In his own way, he was doing a lot of the Sean Strickland stuff, Mm -hmm. where it was, it, it was a lot of hand parries. And a lot of, uh, you know, rolling and slipping and constant movement in the pocket to create defense in ways that were not necessarily like fundamental boxing slipping to slip a punch and, and react and counter, but like his own just kind of janky rhythm that he was running. Mm hmm. And the moment he lost a step on that, it's just, I mean, even, even in the time, like I say, even his peak against like Josh Thompson, yeah, he was getting absolutely crushed. Even Orlando Venata, you know, cause oh, yeah. it's a lot of just sort of like here I am, I am trying to confuse you with my movement rather than necessarily reacting to what you're doing. Yeah. is a lot of Tony Ferguson's movement inside. And so if you just guess right, I'm not, he, he wasn't going to be set up for it. Yep. You know? And, yeah. and that, those really were the fights like right before he completely fell off. I think the yeah. Kevin Lee fight, the Anthony Pettis fight, the Donald Cerrone fight, these are yeah, not these, good, good looks from no. Tony Ferguson. This is a man still just making it work largely through durability. Yeah. The, the RDA fight was his, absolute apex and that yeah. has to be said that that is also because rda is a fighter who yeah he runs on like a system there is rda is one of the most the guys who got to the highest level on like a such a tracked in yeah this is how i fight you can figure it out if you want to but you'll always have to deal with it yeah style and it was just kind of, it was a, you know, in retrospect, it was kind of a perfect shining moment for absolutely for Ferguson. Somebody who is, who is chronically susceptible to Tony Ferguson's kind of pressure as well. Yeah. Stylistically, just um, in hindsight, a very favorable matchup for Tony Ferguson. And then everyone else who just fought him tooth and nail around that time, he won those fights for a minute, but they were brutal and they were tough and he was not really winning them the whole time yeah and then the wheels just fell off yeah and the wheels being gone like you just can't pick him against anybody literally like justin gaethje fight was more than three years ago yeah and everybody who has fought him like he looked okay against michael chandler for a moment yeah because michael chandler is a lot like rda but with a lot more power yeah and uh, less form, honestly, than RDA. Mm-hmm. And I think Michael Chandler is also dumb enough as a person to like not notice that Tony Ferguson had fallen off. He gave him more yep. respect early than he does almost any other opponent. Yeah. 
And so Ferguson looked okay for a minute until Chandler just fucking booted him. <laughs> just, the most, I mean, if we're laughing, it's really one of the most horrific knockouts I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, but also extremely comical. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was like Michael Chandler is like, what if I hit you? And that was it. Yeah. So you got to pick Bobby Green. You have to. Bobby Green has fundamentals. He is going to continue to be a good, effective fighter well into middle age as long as yep. he wants to keep doing it. He's going to lose fights, you know, of course. Yep. But Bobby Green has a ton of material to fall back on as yeah. his athleticism continues to leave him that Tony and, Ferguson and I, never had. And I, I well, I don't know. I, I don't know that the actual, that that, uh, Jared Gordon fight is going to have taught Bobby Green any lesson because the lesson Bobby Green seemed to take out of it was that he was robbed of a win because he he hit Gordon after headbutting him as well. It's like, well, the punches should have counted. <laughs> you know? He knocked him out cold, essentially, with the headbutt. Yeah. Okay. But so he was, he seemed really, really genuinely mad about it. And it probably is too mad to reflect on the idea that Jared Gordon was having a lot more success than he should have. Yeah. Um, but I would hope that a couple of hard losses or knocks for Bobby Green would kind of give him a little pause to reassess it. If he wants to be an old fighter that's a good fighter, then he should fall back more on the, yeah, the, the guy he was against Nazrat Hawk Perost. Right. And uh, Lando Venata. What a, what a performance that was. Yeah. That Hawk Brust fight. Or even Lando Venata in the rematch. Yeah. Again, that they had. Like, fall back to that guy more. Or the the, the guy who fought Hafel Fiziev. Mm hmm. Like, be that fighter more than the guy who lost to Drew Dober and Jared Gordon. I like how MMA has ruined your brain for names like Rafael. Yeah. Because he's not Brazilian. <laughs> Rafael Fazeev, but I'm always going to immediately be a Rafael Fazeev when I see I didn't it. even notice it the first time you said it. It just felt yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's how we say that name in this sport. Yeah, I mean, even if it's a bad version of Bobby Green, you're not going to pick Tony Ferguson here. No. Not going to happen. Green is the favorite. Open at minus 303. is currently at minus 389. Everybody else is coming to that same conclusion. Ferguson opened at plus 227. is currently at plus 319. All right, that brings us to a welterweight bout. Michael Chiesa, Kevin Holland. Michael Chiesa is going to wrestle. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Was it you? You're supposed to go? You're, you're going. It's you. Michael Chiesa is going to wrestle. Yeah, you think that's just going to be Kevin Holland? Yeah. Kevin Holland has not actually really gotten better at wrestling. Yeah. What he has gotten is bigger than his opponents. This is true. This has made the huge difference. Um... And otherwise, he goes out there and just donks people. I did think he um, he he looked a little more like his old self against Santiago Ponzinibbio, a little. Yeah. And it is worth knowing too that he he busted his hand against Stephen Thompson, so that really kind of took him yeah, out. But of he was fighting like a moron. He was because he had a handshake agreement to fight like a moron. I guess. Yeah. But he was not even just that though. Not, not, yeah, not just that no, he I... refused to, to exploit the obvious grappling advantage. His decisions on the feet. We've talked about oh, this yeah. multiple times in the Kevin Holland run at welterweight. Kevin Holland used to be capable 
every third fight of being a really sharp technical boxer. Yeah. That has largely vanished. Again, he brought a little of that back against Ponzinibbio. Yeah. But still, really, he's just out there donking these smaller dudes with huge punches. It should be noted, though, and this is my concern. Michael Chiesa will often spend around standing with people. Sure. At least. Because uh, Rick Little is a very smart man. Brain disease. <laughs> like he just gets in the head of these sick just has a brain disease or is a brain disease is no he (laughs) he infects these sick jitsu fighters in ways that like like yeah they just seem incapable of improving or getting away from what he has taught them yeah well because that's for pussies exactly it is just like (laughs) If we love Henry Hooft, understand that the opposite end of that spectrum yes. is is Rick Little. 100%. Like, or is and it... Someday Henry Hooft and Rick Little will meet like shirtless with swords on a mountaintop yeah. in the final, in the Ragnarok of good coach versus evil coach. The, the final battle. Yeah, and because it's just he instills the actual worst fundamentals in people that can never be broken. Yeah. He is fundamentally a meathead. So, yeah. And Uh, so there is, so just like Michael Kiesa has literally never gotten better at striking, but he has gotten more comfortable. He's gotten more comfortable and he has a willingness to do it. Yeah. But it's just never improved. Yeah despite working with other coaches for years now as well, uh, it just doesn't get better. Yeah. And so with Kevin Holland being as long as he is, there is a chance that Kiesa just like gets really uncomfortable and gets punched a whole bunch. Sure. Kiesa has never been knocked out. Yeah. Um, super durable. Yeah. Um, I think you have to be more consistent than Holland has been. Yeah. To definitively beat Kiesa. And he's just, he is going to grapple. Yeah. Doubtless. And despite the fact that these guys have moved in opposite directions and uh, from one, Kevin Holland coming from middleweight down and Kiesa having, it's hard to imagine now, once been a lightweight. Yeah. Kiesa is a big, strong welterweight. Yeah. Um, that was the most notable thing is the moment he went up, the dude just packed on a shitload of muscle and, and looks really powerful and difficult to tangle with. And only guys like, like absolute tanks, like Sean Brady are in there, like overpowering him. Yeah. I do wonder a little He survived the Neil Magny hypnotoad clinch for God's sake. He did. Yeah. No, he was the better wrestler. He beat him in the clinch. Um, there is a part of me that does wonder too, though, that like, Kiesa has not fought in a couple of years uh-huh. now, and I do kind of wonder if how much of how much he's actually just invested in being a fighter anymore. Sure, you know it seems like he moved over to a broadcast position. Mm-hmm. Um, how much? Yeah, like how much of him is really serious about this? So, yeah, that's fair. 
He was if, supposed he was supposed to be booked earlier this year, apparently. Yeah. Against the leech. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. And of course, though, Kevin Holland is always the guy. He's become one of those guys who is now always talking about retirement, but not retiring. (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I'll pick Chiesa with you because the wrestling is still a big concern. But he's yeah. Kevin Holland has just since moving to welterweight. He's fought a bunch of guys who can't wrestle. Yeah. And then Kamsat Shemaev. Yeah, it's true. But I do think that the length for Holland could cause Kiesa huge problems if he decides at all that he doesn't want to get to his wrestling right away. Sure. Odds on the bout. Holland is the favorite. Kiesa opened at plus 133, is currently plus 127. Holland opened at minus 147, currently minus 141. So his lines aren't moving a lot, but Holland is a slight favorite. I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. Holland's got cachet at the moment. I just think he even does. if he lands, he's going to crash into Chiesa. Chiesa's going to yeah. body lock him. You know, Chiesa's a sneakily effective takedown artist. It's true, because even the best version of Kevin Holland at welterweight is still a fighter who will lunge into the pocket yeah. and then try to be defensive once he gets there and often yeah. just sort of, like, let his opponent clinch him up, tie yeah. him up. And if he for, if he if he does that to Kiesa, he'll practically force Kiesa to wrestle. Yep, it'd be great to see Kevin Holland go back to his old ways. Maybe yeah. if if some part of him could recognize that he has basically not been tested in this particular aspect, and that now he needs to fight smart. But I just don't trust him to do yep. that. On that note, we're gonna jump over to our bonus content. A little chat about Aspinall versus Tegura. A fireside chat. Yeah. To access the bonus content of this show, you must be a paid subscriber. To do that, go to bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com and subscribe today. Thank you for tuning in to this Bloody Elbow Podcast production. Subscribe at bloodyelbowpodcast.substack.com. Give us your email and receive notifications when your favorite shows drop straight into your inbox. We're also found on a wide variety of podcast outlets. Just search for Bloody Elbow Podcast and you will get new shows throughout the week, including the MMA Bunker and MMA Tete-a-Tete shows with Kid Nate, the Level Change Podcast, the Hey Not the Face Podcast, the MMA Vivisection Main Card and Prelims UFC Preview Shows, the Sixth Round Post Fight Show, the Show Money Podcast, and the MMA Depressed Us.